0: Well hey good morning and happy Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday before Easter. Yeah, so turn to your neighbor and say Happy Palm Sunday. Yeah. It's a lot of enthusiasm and excitement out there. <laughs> So if you have a Bible, go on and open up to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to look at this amazing story and see how it relates to our lives. If you need a Bible, you have some people walking around with some Bibles, just slip up a hand and they will put a Bible in your hand so you can follow along with us. And hopefully on your way in, even as you're finding uh, your place there in Matthew chapter 21, you uh, receive these grace notes, uh, just a great way to, to connect and see what's going on here. Obviously making our way towards uh, Easter and next Sunday we'll be gathering for a big uh, resurrection celebration. At 7 a.m. we'll have a sunrise service out in the courtyard. At 9 we'll be back in here and then 11 we'll have an outdoor uh, worship gathering followed by, um, by a barbecue and baptisms, and it's just going to be a, a great morning together. So uh, make sure uh, we have some postcards, we have some yard signs, we want to make sure we invite, just a great easy opportunity to invite friends and neighbors to come be a part of uh, this special day. And so want to make that easy for you, so grab some of those on your way out. Um, Over the last few weeks, we've been celebrating a lot of the different things that God is stirring up in people, calling them into, awakening dreams and and moving people forward in faith. And we believe that really is the heartbeat of the church, is God's people encountering the presence of God, being transformed by the grace and the love of God as revealed in Jesus. And then being called forward into their purpose and to their calling and their destiny as they live into their unique identity in God. And one of those that you, we as a church rallied around uh, was uh, Jonah, who um, we uh, just sent last week over to the Holy Land as part of a big fundraiser to raise money for kids from the Middle East to be able to go to Young Life Camp uh, in the West Bank, in, uh, in Israel, and Palestine. And, uh, and, and many of you know, we've been celebrating this for a while, that Jonah originally had a goal of raising $3,000 that would be sending 30 kids, 30 kids from the Middle East to uh, Young Life Camp for the summer. Ended up raising over sixteen thousand dollars. So uh, as he went on his hikeathon on the Jesus Trail from Nazareth up to uh, up to Capernaum, he uh, is actually able. We as a church were able to now send one hundred and sixty kids, over one hundred sixty kids, to uh, summer camp this summer. Yeah, it's amazing. So uh, I asked Jonah. Just see he's over there right now. He's he's completed his hike. He's done his forty-mile trek uh, across the uh, Judean countryside. And I uh, asked him to send us a, a little uh, greeting from uh, from the Holy Land. Now there is an issue we've had, uh, and I don't know if it's because Jonah is on the other side of the world, uh, but the video when we imported it, he's upside down, and we could not figure out how to turn him right side up. So either you can just bear with it, uh, or if you need to, you can turn your head like this and watch the video. But I didn't want you to at least hear what he had to say. So we'll go on and show that now.
1: I know I am. I don't have to do 12 miles today. So that's exciting. Me and uh, my team get to hang out in Bethlehem. I'm actually at uh, the Marad Resort right now. Um, And this is where Young Life hosts their camp, their Capernaum camp. A lot of us this summer got to experience what it's like uh, to have Young Life in Bethlehem. Um, A couple takeaways from the trail. Well, right off the bat, it was actually really sweet. We started in Nazareth, obviously, and probably about a mile into it, we were passing some houses. And this little boy came running out with his baby sister. The boy is probably like seven years old, holding his sister, who's like three And they came running out like directly at me and I was looking around like they looked like they knew me and they brought me this bouquet of flowers and uh, it was just very sweet. I just wasn't expecting that. Um, And so that kind of blessed the very beginning of my walk. Um, And then, you know, four days later, we checked it off. But what I've been meditating on is, like in Matthew 4, it talks about how um, Jesus left Judea and went to Galilee. And from there, he went Nazareth to Capernaum. And it's such a short little statement. He went from Nazareth to Capernaum. But that's 40 miles. And what I've realized is when you're walking a distance that long with a crew, you start to talk about your story, you start to talk about the joys and the sorrows that you've experienced, uh, you start to talk about your dreams, your hopes, and you really start to connect with people on a, on a deep level. And it made me realize that like that was Jesus' ministry. Like the in-between parts, that was his biggest ministry when he could, you know, speak to people according to their hurts. And it makes me realize that that's our mission is to walk with people to learn about people ask their story understand the cultural context um and just empathize with them and be with them and walk with them one of the coolest things about being on this trail this adventure was that we had arab israelis we had um, palestinians um, we had a messianic jewish leader with us so we had a variety of ethnic groups and, and people groups and yet we all met in the middle the middle being Jesus is King and that was like the center of the conversation that was who we all were that was our core identity and everything else everything on top it matters but in the end the only thing that matters is that we are connected through Jesus and uh so I hope that encourages you. Uh, looking forward to seeing all of you guys next week. I head out on Tuesday, so y'all pray for some safe travels. And um, yeah, love you guys.
0: It's good, isn't it? I love that. We meet in the middle, and the middle is Jesus is King. That's good. And that's actually where we're headed today, this declaration that Jesus is king. And so Matthew 21, we get this story of Jesus making his way into Jerusalem. And and I love uh, even what Jonah just shared is this little verse that, you know, from Capernaum to Nazareth. I mean, kind of you you read it and don't even think about it, that 40 mile trek. And as as he experienced, uh, 40 miles walked is, uh, is, is quite an experience. It's a lot of time, and it's a lot of little stories along the way. And so we have uh, here Jesus' final journey, Jesus uh, walking into Jerusalem for the last time. It marks the beginning of what we call Holy Week, which is this week, the week leading up to Easter and all the events preceding Jesus' death on the cross And so starting in verse one, and now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet It was Zechariah saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now the disciples went and they did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and they put put on them their cloaks. And he, being Jesus, sat on them. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. A familiar story if you've grown up in the church, the story of Jesus uh, on the back of a donkey making his way down that hill called the Mount of Olives into the city of David, the city of Jerusalem. The crowds waving their palm branches like flags, like banners declaring Hosanna, Save us. Hosanna in the highest. But to understand the the significance of that scene, we kind of need to step back into history just a little bit. And and that is to recognize that Jesus was entering an occupied city. It, It was occupied by the Roman army that had set up shop there. It was sort of their uh, military hub for that region of the world. So there would have been uh, Roman soldiers at checkpoints and guard towers all over that hillside. And especially as you entered that city, the people would have gotten used to this Roman occupation and the burden and the pain that that would have caused. And for them, the, the, the Jewish people living in that town, in this place that was supposed to symbolize the greatness of their God, the center of his kingdom here on earth, the space that was supposed to be a, a light on a a shining city, like a light on a hill, a light to the nations. Instead for them was a place of pain, And uncertainty, where it felt like there was no hope for the future. Where when they walked out their front door, it felt like everything had been taken away. They were just scraping by, powerless, out of control. And I just wonder even if as we try to place ourselves into that story and just in the anxiety and in the uncertainty of this world, they use this language of collective trauma from the last few years, whether that's from the economy or from political upheaval or or from global events, wars and the rumors of wars, uh, from pandemics to illness after illness to, to not knowing if we can trust our neighbor or what is. Going to, what is going to rip our world apart tomorrow, that we live in this place of this constant sense of uncertainty like we're out of control. A world defined by fear and angst. And we know from human history, we know from our own lives that what flows from fear most often is anger. That simmering Resentful, like waiting like a a powder keg waiting for a spark type of anger. We know that, right? We know that from our world. And maybe we know that from our lives. This is the scene in which Jesus is entering. A people that every Saturday, For their rhythm of worship would have gathered together and sung songs and told stories of what God had done in the Old Testament. And read the words of the prophets of a God who is faithful, of a God who would return, of a God who would restore and redeem, of a king that was coming. And yet at some point, those weekly stories would have started to feel really, really far away. And those words of the prophet would have started to feel really false and irrelevant. And every year, about this time in the spring, they would have gathered together what was called Passover and would have joined together for this giant party and feast in the city of Jerusalem, remembering God's great deliverance out of Egypt, out of slavery into the promised land. And at some point, though, it would have just become a party that we throw because we're supposed to, not a party that we live into because we're expecting God to do the same thing again. Because how many Passovers can we celebrate and still live in slavery? And I just wonder, the world that we live in, even those that call themselves Christians, if we just, if the stories at some point start to feel false, if the things that we sing about on Sundays and, and the words that we read about, if it just feels really far away and distant and irrelevant because I see the world that I live in and I know what I'm I'm facing and experiencing, and the question then becomes like, how can a God who claims to, to redeem and restore, whose all his promises are going to come true, when it it feels like there's still so much brokenness and darkness right here in front of me anyone been there and they're actually calling it it has a name now especially among our millennial friends it's the deconstruction of faith a taking apart because all of a sudden all of the things that were held together or were supposed to hold the world together just feel really shaky and unsure. This was the scene Jesus was entering into. And actually, Jesus wasn't the first to, to walk into this city of Jerusalem with, with the expectation that God was gonna finally fulfill the promises of redeeming, of restoring his kingdom. About 100 years before, a guy named Simon of the Maccabees had walked down that same road met with the same shouts and was quickly put down by the Romans. But this time, this time, maybe God was up to something new and there's rumors that are circulating that maybe God's promised savior, the anointed king, the Messiah had finally shown up, a new Joshua, Jeshua, whose name means salvation, We call him Jesus. They'd heard of his miracles, how he'd given sight to the blind, how he'd healed the sick and the lame, had touched the disease, had walked on water, had calmed storms, had freed the oppressed and the demonic. And now this one, with so much anticipation of making his way into Jerusalem where the promised deliverer was to come coming in time for Passover, when the promised deliverer was supposed to come. And so we see Jesus setting the stage, sending two disciples ahead. And he says to them, you will find, you will find that he had already set things up for them to do, that he had a plan. And it was a plan that they were invited to participate in, and it was a plan of discovery. But it wasn't just any plan. As Matthew tells us, it was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, that it was a very old plan. Actually, what he quotes from Zechariah 9, if you have your Bible there, if you want to write that next to Matthew 21. <clears throat> And that prophecy that Zechariah gives, that Matthew quotes pointing to what Jesus was doing is, uh, is in the context of this declaration that, that your king is coming. Zechariah 9 verse eight says this, but I will defend my house against marauding forces and never again will the oppressor overrun my people. For now I am keeping watch. In other words, that the oppressed will become the victors. And it continues, so rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Righteous and having salvation. Gentle and riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. Exactly what Matthew just quoted. The battle bow will be broken. And he will proclaim peace to the nations. And his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river Euphrates to the ends of the earth. So Zechariah's prophecy was this, that there's one riding on a donkey who will, bring, who will nonviolently bring peace to the world, centered in Jerusalem. And it goes on, verse 11 in Zechariah. As for you, God declares, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress or your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Even now, I will announce that I will restore twice as much to you. In other words, you were a prisoner, but you will be set free. You were a victim, but now you're a victor. And, And your prison is actually becoming a fortress. Your stronghold, a place of power. And that what you lost will be restored because of this peacemaker who will come riding on a donkey. I mean, you can see how much is wrapped up in this image of what Jesus is doing. <clears throat> for, the, <clears throat> excuse me, for those that are in our <clears throat> Hearing God class this last week, we talked about that word stronghold. And, and we see that strongholds are in, in these places of, of power where the demonic or uh, the spiritual forces of darkness can launch attacks against God's people the places that the enemy has a foothold in our life. <clears throat> but what we see is that by the redemption of the Lord that God is actually able to take, excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, is actually able to take those places of power that were used against us and flip them upside down. And they actually become places of power in our lives. And so what we see in our own life, we're going to apply this, not just as kind of uh, theological theory, but is that the places that cause you the most pain, cause you the most shame, the places, whether it was something done to you or something done by you, that the enemy has used to disrupt your life, to, to paralyze you in fear, to keep you from pursuing what God has put in you to do and to accomplish, to live fully into that God actually by his redemption, by his restoration, is able to take those places that were formerly power against you and use them as power for God through you. That the strongholds become a fortress. And this is the promise of Zechariah. So this is what Jesus is living into as he's making his way, that this is the king who's coming to flip everything upside down, to restore that which was lost, to redeem and to heal that which was broken that the king is coming. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he got back, got on the back of that baby donkey. His disciples thought they knew what it meant as they spread those cloaks and waved those palm branches. So they did what was directed and they found What was expected, they they found this donkey and Jesus enters the city. They spread their cloaks. They wave their branches and they shout, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes. Oh, wow. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is, is this word that means save us. So say Hosanna. Say it like you mean it. Hosanna. Save us. Say it again. Save us. It's a word that has power and significance. And actually it's not even just like save us. It's this desperate plea. It is God, please save us. Have you ever been in that place? On your bathroom floor or in your bedroom or at the kitchen sink or watching your kid drive away? Or in the car after work? Sitting in the parking lot? Standing in the rain, God, please save me. And so as they're crying, Hosanna, it isn't just this party cheer or like at an Atlanta United game, all the songs and the chants that they, they shout out. No, this is a desperate cry from their bottom of their soul. God, please save us now. It echoes the promise of Isaiah 62. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Remember, it's the exact same word as what was in Zechariah. To the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. And behold, his reward is with him. And the word there for salvation is the word yesha. Save. Save. The same, it's the same root as the word Yeshua, Savior. But what's amazing is Isaiah actually describes this yesha, this salvation, as a person. And not just any person, but God himself. So it can even be said that in Isaiah, written 700 years before Yeshua, Jesus was even born, that it actually refers to what God was going to do directly by his divine name. Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, your yesha comes. Behold, your Jesus comes. And maybe if we're just honest for a minute about our own places of fear or anger or hurt or brokenness, Struggle or disappointment or doubt, the places we're deconstructing our own faith because of unmet expectations. We can hear that word this Palm Sunday Your Jesus comes. Your Jesus comes. And so they're waving their hopes and their dreams in front of Jesus. But what happens when Jesus fails to meet their expectations? Yes, he's king, but what if he's a different kind of king than what they're demanding? What if God is on a bigger mission than simply changing their circumstances? but actually wants to transform their souls so that they can flourish in any circumstance. What if for you, in that place that you're crying out, God, save us, and in that hope, Jesus who comes, God is more concerned than simply changing your circumstances, but in transforming your soul to flourish in any circumstance. And so here Jesus comes right before the Passover into this messianic expectation of a savior. And as this crowd is making all of this noise, the, the, the Jewish leaders, the religious, uh, the religious elite, they know they, they need to shut this thing down because they know what happened the last time a supposed Messiah came walking into town, Simon, who we mentioned before of the Maccabees. The Romans didn't just kill Simon. The Romans came in and they wiped out everyone associated or they even thought associated with it. It was mass executions. It was, it was a, a mass devastation where the Romans put down one that they thought was coming to challenge their rule. And so the Jewish leaders, it makes sense. They're like, okay, can we just keep this a little quieter? It isn't really so much about Jesus. It is about the fact that they don't want the the Romans to come and wipe out everybody to destroy the little bit that they had. But Jesus knows. He's an instigator and a catalyst. He's forcing a decision. Either coronate him as king or crucify him. And the whole city is stirred up asking, who is this? Who is this? Which is the critical question. It's the most important question: Who is this Jesus? And so, even this Palm Sunday, as we get into year after year, we, we come and we wave our palm branches, and and we and we begin this Holy Week, moving to Easter. And it's so easy for it just to become one of those traditions that we engage in. But we have to come back to that question: Who do you say that he is? Who is this Jesus? And how is he bringing disruption into your life? What is he instigating, wanting to stir up, wanting to bring to the the point of decision? What about for me personally right now? So how does this story speak into our current lives? Well, the question becomes, how will you receive him? How will you receive him? As one that you hope will will fix your circumstances? Or one that wants to transform your soul? And can you trust him? Can you trust him that he actually knows what is best for you? Can you trust him? His plans and his purposes are bigger and better than we can see. And like his disciples, that he invites us into this mission with him, to receive him as king and to walk with him as Lord. And so our first response is simply this to receive. And it's that ultimate question Have you received Jesus as king in your own life? For some that have grown up in the church, it almost sounds like a cliche question, but it is the question. It is a daily question, not just a one-time question from back when I was eight. Do I receive Jesus Christ as the Lord and the King of my life? Now we know what's on the other side of this triumphal entry that Jesus will make his way into that city. And there in that city, he will be betrayed and arrested, tortured, and ultimately crucified. That the path to his kingship is a path of pain. Here's what I found. (laughs) I think Siri needs Jesus. So our first response to this, do you receive Jesus? Have you received Jesus into your life? And as we receive, we obey to do what he says. As we expect him to move, we move with him. And we remember, we remember this ancient story that we find ourselves in, that we're part of a much bigger plan that God is enacting. I mean, this resonates for me. I mean, I've been wrestling with this this week because this is such a familiar story and I've preached it so many times, but had to place this alongside. I was talking to Sadie. The, the other day I was watching this uh, uh, documentary thing on PBS about quantum physics, which, you know, just a typical Tuesday evening. And uh, and I don't understand it at all, but uh, what was amazing about this documentary was it ta- was talking about technology and how fast technology is advancing. And that basically the, the, the breakthroughs that they're on the verge of in technology uh, will um, dwarf any sort of technological advance that we've made so far. And, and what I was thinking about is like, that we're about to destroy ourselves with our own quest for knowledge. And it felt so hopeless to me. It was weird, this random PBS documentary. I, I was so depressed. Like, I, just, I mean, really, I just felt the weight of this thing. I was like, it's like, it's, it's, we're gonna collapse society because of our own like craving for power and knowledge. It's such a dark statement to make, isn't it? Happy Palm Sunday. But I had to come back to this, can I trust that there is a God who is in control of this universe that is carrying out a plan that is much bigger than my circumstances and my perspective, and that it can look like the world is winning, and it can look like the darkness is overwhelming, and it can look like that humanity is going to destroy itself as if we're in control of anything, And can I step back and recognize that there is a God who is bigger than it all, and there is a king who came, and there is a king who is coming, and that Jesus is Lord, and that no one can topple him from his throne, that there is only one unshakable kingdom, and it is not any kingdom of earth. Is the kingdom of God, and I can stand firmly on that. And if this world around me collapses and burns, there is still one who is in control that I can trust with my life and my soul. And so, for me, I had to come to a place. I mean, I mean, literally, because of a quantum physics documentary, of coming back to that simple and yet life-altering truth: Jesus, you are king and i cannot see or understand everything that you're doing you're the one in control you're the one that i can trust and you're the only one that's worthy to follow and wherever you lead me i can trust that in the end you're good So we remember this ancient story, we receive Jesus as king and we obey him and do the next thing. And ultimately the story of Palm Sunday is actually a story of praise. Luke, as he's telling the story or or, uh, writing down the account of what happened when Jesus was entering that city for the final time, Includes this random line from Jesus at the end of his account. It's Luke 19:39. It says that uh, Luke records that some of the Pharisees in the crowd were, were, were kind of pulling on the disciples and saying, or pulling on Jesus and saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, get them to be quiet because they're creating a big fuss here. Rebuke them. Do you hear what they're saying? Like they knew all of the things that was, were being associated with the things the crowd was yelling. Hosanna, save us. That's about a king. That's about a Messiah. That's about fulfilling prophecy. Right? Rebuke them. How dare they say the things that they're saying? And this is Jesus' response. I tell you, if these, this, these people, if they, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, it's an interesting statement from Jesus because we have no parallel to where that verse, where that phrase comes from. Whether it's an ancient proverb, it's not in the Bible anywhere. Like what is Jesus talking about when he uses this phrase that the very stones will cry out? You know, quite simply, you know, it's like, it's like they know what they're talking about. And if you try to shut them up, even these dumb rocks know what's true. But I think there's more there. The right response to Palm Sunday is to praise. When you're studying the Bible, there's this principle called the, the, the law of the first mention. And it comes from this idea that, that where something is mentioned for the first time in the Bible sets the tone for which we, we understand or view it the rest of the Bible. And so the very first mention of stones, do you know this in the Bible? The first time there's a specific rock mentioned in the Bible is actually Genesis chapter 28. It's the story of Jacob. Jacob, this young punk, his grandfather was Abraham, who God had made a promise that through Abraham and his family line, the whole world would be blessed. Jacob is uh, running in fear from his brother Esau because he just stole his blessing. And he finds himself camping out in the wilderness, in this desolate place where he's lost what feels like he's lost his family, where his shrewdness and his deceit, it seems as like finally caught up with him, an exile in his own homeland. And he goes to sleep and it says that he, he takes a rock, the first mention of a rock in the Bible, and he places it under his head, not necessarily the most comfortable pillow, but it was the best that he had. And he has a dream. And in that dream, he he sees this vision of this stairway or a ladder leading from heaven to earth and the angels ascending and descending on it. This picture of the presence of God made available to the people of earth. And and as uh, Jacob sees this dream, he hears God declare, All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. And it says that Jacob took that rock that he had placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar. Declaring surely the Lord is in this place. So what if that stone could talk? What would it say? Praise God. Praise God because he is faithful. Praise God because he will do what he has promised. Praise God that even when it feels like a detour or a dead end, he's not done. Praise God that he is with you every step of the way. Praise God because he is faithful to his promises. The next stone that gets mentioned is actually Exodus chapter 17. It's Moses leading his people out of slavery through the wilderness towards the promised land. And the people in this desolate place, in this place that feels like maybe slavery was actually better, begin to complain about their thirst. Has God abandoned us? Has He forgotten us? Take us back at least where we had masters that we knew that there was a meal coming. And they begin to complain to Moses. And God direct, tells Moses, strike that stone with your staff, and out of that rock comes gushing water. And what if that stone could talk? What would it say? Praise God. Praise God that he will nourish you in your desert, that he will provide for you in the wasteland, that he will not abandon you or forsake you. Praise God. Several decades later, Joshua's leading his people finally out of the wilderness into the promised land. It says that when Joshua and the priests step into the Jordan River, that the water piles up and they walk across on dry ground. And what does Joshua do when he gets across? He takes a stone, actually 12. And he places those 12 stones there as a pile to declare the faithfulness of God. And what would those stones say? Praise God. Praise God that he is faithful. Praise God that when you, when you don't know what he's doing, that you can trust him. Praise God that, that even when it feels like that you're being overwhelmed, he's with you, that he's gone before you. That take that step of faith. A few generations A young boy named David would pick up a handful of stones and face a mighty giant in the valley. And what would those stones say? Praise God. Praise God because even in your fear, God is faithful. Praise God. Because no matter what giant you're facing, The victory belongs to the Lord. Several hundred years later, there's a woman that would get thrown in front of Jesus, having been caught in the very act of adultery. And it says that they would pick up, that the, the, the men around them picked up these rocks to stone her. And Jesus, stooping in the ground, begins to write in the dust. And as she lays there on her face in her shame and in her embarrassment and her tears, she hears the stones fall one by one. Until finally no one is left. And Jesus turns and says, Is there no one left to condemn you? And what would those stones say? Praise God. Praise God because he forgives you in your guilt and he holds you in your shame and in him there is no condemnation. That he sees you and he knows you and he loves you and he has never turned his face away from you. And ultimately, as we'll celebrate next Sunday, this is that Jesus... This supposed king, that the authorities could not grasp what he represented or what he was doing, would nail him to a cross and would execute him. And his very last words, or some of his very last words, as he hung from that cross and looked at this crowd mocking him, would declare, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in breathing his last, he would declare, it is finished. And the very veil of the, the, the very curtain, the, that veil that separated the presence of God from the people, that glimpse that Jacob got in the wilderness of the connection between heaven and earth would be ripped open so that nothing could be separated from the love of God because of the forgiveness that was in Christ. But taking him down from the cross, what would that final stone be? This giant stone that they would roll in front of his tomb. And three days later, what would that stone declare? Praise God. Praise God. He is alive. And he forgives you. And he saves you. And he heals you. And he is with you. And he is faithful and he is victorious, and he is present, and he is available, and he is here, and he is king. Praise God. And then a few decades later, (laughs) Peter, the one that Jesus would name the rock, the stone, would write a letter to the people of God, to his church, and say, you, you, living stones, being built into a dwelling where the presence of God can live. You, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you, may proclaim, declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you and me, living stones on this Palm Sunday, what do our lives declare? What are the praises that are flowing out of our lips and our mouths? that you're forgiven, set free, that the faithful one is with you, that you can face your fear, that you're not alone, that he's alive. As we continue in our worship, we will take communion together. Communion, this reminder, this living into the final meal that Jesus would take with his disciples, just a few days from the events that we just read about, that Thursday night after that Sunday, that Palm Sunday, where Jesus would take this bread and he'd break it. And he'd say, this, this Passover bread, the story that you've told for thousands of years has always been a story about me. This is my body given for you. And so we take this bread as this reminder of the presence of God with us in Christ, the presence of God for us, who has never left us, never failed us. His promises come true. And So even as we tear that bread from that common loaf, we remember the power and the presence of God with us. And then we dip it in that cup, as Jesus took that last supper, that cup of redemption, that Passover wine, and He said, "This is My blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. And every time you do this, do this in remembrance of Me." And so we dip that bread in the cup in the remembrance of the forgiveness of God by the blood of Jesus. And so I invite you into worship. I would actually encourage you as you take communion, to even just reflect in your own life on this Palm Sunday, where is Jesus inviting me to receive his kingdom? What is he forgiving? What is he cleansing? What is he restoring? Where do I need to receive Jesus this morning? And I would encourage you to take communion as families or as couples or as friends to pray for each other, to move around the room. If you wanna come kneel and pray here, just to make space for God to work in our hearts, even as we prepare ourselves for that great news of Easter, that Resurrection Sunday. So Lord Jesus, right now, we recognize your presence with us that never leaves, that you are always with us forever faithful living and active. And so God, I pray for each person here that our lives would become a declaration of praise to you for your forgiveness, for your faithfulness. And so even right now, Lord, will you search our hearts? God, what are you wanting us to know? Where are we needing to receive you as King this morning? Are there any demands or expectations that we need to release and let go of so that we can receive you, Jesus, for who you are? The true King, the true Lord over all things. We worship you together. Amen.